The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Sequel Quest, Episode 108. A sequel to the epic fail marketing flop of Disney's John Carter. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now. Welcome, inhabitants of Barsoom and Earthmen alike, to the Sequel Quest podcast. No parody intro this week. Because frankly, who would get the reference? <laughs> even if you saw the movie. So instead, let me introduce you to my co-host for this episode, and every episode. Currently bounding across a desert wasteland like the Hulk while dressed like He-Man, it's Jeff. <laughs> that I am. Next, it's the ginger who puts the red in Red Planet. It's Jeremy. I guess. <laughs> it's a visual medium, isn't it? Oh, wait, it's podcasting. My bad. And I'm Adam, but if you're a Thark, you might call me California! Okay, that was kind of deep for the movie. We'll get into was it. Was that deep? <laughs> <laughs> this time around on Sequel Quest, we are daring to take on the infamous space fantasy adventure flop, John Carter. Yep, just John Carter. Uh, is this a sequel to that Samuel L. Jackson basketball movie, Coach Carter? Uh, no. How about a hint on where the action takes place in the title? No? Nothing? Just John Carter? Jeremy, we're relying on you. You gotta spill the beans on what this movie is all about. Can you drop a synopsis oh, on us? The synopsis of this movie? Good uh, luck, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, so here is the synopsis for John Carter, comma, maybe in parentheses, of Mars. Captain John Carter was a great warrior when he fought for his cause, the Confederate States of America, during the Civil War. He was really disappointed when the Confederates lost to the Union, but what hurt most was the death of his family, his wife and daughter, to an ungrateful Union troop. From both the Confederates' defeat and more to the point the death of his family, he decides to not give a darn about anything worthwhile on the planet and to only look out for himself. Three years later, in 1868, while trying to live a normal life by claiming gold for himself, he ran away for safety and encountered Apache Indians in the Arizona Territory. He hid in a cave where he found mystic cave drawings and gold. While there, he was surprised by an appearance of a thern, and John kills him. The alien's medallion transports John Carter to Barsoom, a.k.a. Mars, he was then taken prisoner by an yet another alien race known as the Tharks. He soon escapes and is caught in a great war fought between the red-skinned humans of Helium and Zodanga. Throughout the course of the film, John Carter has to learn the importance of the cause of the people of Helium, fighting for and putting away his selfishness, and fight for the ones he loves and for the freedom of Barsoom. This is how John Carter of Earth became John Carter of Mars, comma a clone and yeah this is uh this is a really weird movie <laughs> there you go wait hold up so this this whole plot we're kind of briefly introduced to john and then he disappears i must be misremembering this movie but then there's this kid who's getting these stories lawyers right. yeah, lawyers his, his are involved nephew. here and it's yeah. not the disney ones that are negotiating <laughs> with sony here yeah it's it's lawyers that are telling him you're well your uncle has died and apparently the kid in this movie is edgar rice burroughs who is the author of this uh, book series sort of yeah that's kinda, uh, a well, little that's stretch he, right that's how he wrote the books is he wrote the books kind of oh like, he wrote himself into the books yeah like he was discovering these stories that they weren't made up. That was his writing style. Ah. Well, the interesting thing, and that's it, it has to be the subtitle or whatever of this entire thing, is that John Carter is one of the historic examples of production hell of all time, where it has literally been nearly a hundred years that people have been trying to make this movie. It was actually set to be the first animated full-length feature film that was going to precede oh, wow. Snow White back in the 30s, back in the 60s. It was going to be a stop-motion claymation thing. Then it was going to be live action in the 80s. 
and then finally got made in 2012. So yeah. that alone, because Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, who wrote this, also the guy who invented Tarzan, he wrote 11 different novels about John Carter. And unfortunately, none of us have heard of that today, which I think is the beginning of the problem with this movie. Yeah, just like if you go back and you think about other movies that we've covered, The Shadow, for example, it was the same thing. When that movie came out in the 90s, the character was already 60 years old. He was once the most popular character in literature, and now nobody knew who The Shadow was. In fact, everybody only knew who The Shadow had influenced, (laughs) you know, Batman and all these other major characters nowadays, with John Carter, it's this hugely influential book series for sci-fi, which, you know, is still technically a, a small audience and a small genre, despite years of Star Wars telling us otherwise. But it's like John Carter is known, not even the casual sci-fi fan may have heard the name, but probably right. not. You know, it's right. like, it's only people who are really deep into the history of science fiction fantasy literature that say, oh yeah, John Carter, Princess of Mars. Yeah, I've, I've read that, you know, but not so many. Oh, yeah. So it's like, it's a character that didn't endure for the reason I think that, Jeff, you mentioned is if they had made those movies way back when, then there would have been some basis for it to be remade or rebooted or continue. And there, there was just never anything besides these novels to get the name out there, except for in the 70s, there was a Marvel Comics John Carter Warlord of Mars series mm-hmm that was running concurrently with, you know, like Conan the Barbarian, which is much more popular than John Carter Warlord of Mars, you know? But it's like, really he's only ever been adapted through comic books, and outside of that, he's just had nothing except this movie to lay claim to in a visual sense, aside from some very exciting paintings and artwork for the novels and re-releases of of the novels over the years. You know, also you said, Edgar Rice Burroughs, he created Tarzan, who is like infinitely more well-known and more popular. So why do you think, what is the difference? I think you're right. It's movies. Is that most of us don't know the books of Tarzan, but we know the movies or the TV shows or the references or whatever. Because, I mean, if you think about it, again, if this would have been the first full-length animated film of all time. I mean, Snow White is a household name. Imagine that John Carter was made instead of that. Yeah, our our world would be different. Would we have a Disneyland? Or would we have a, a John Carter land? Mars, <laughs> Mars yeah. world. Mars candy bars would have hopped oh. on the bandwagon. They would have been even bigger than they are. But I mean, it's interesting too, like you say, Jeff, because it was the studio that was going to make this, you know, full length animated feature also just didn't believe in it. Like it was being pitched to them. They're like, ah, nobody's going right. to go for that. And then shortly thereafter, Flash Gordon appears on the scene yep. and Buck Rogers. Yep. And then Flash Gordon gets his serials made these live action adventures and they're hugely popular so it was like literally just a missed opportunity they were not forward thinking but i think it's interesting as as we're going to get more into the production of this movie but i'm just curious for you guys in terms of having actually seen the film is this a film you sought out and were aware of prior to this other than its reputation Jeremy, how about you? Uh, I didn't watch this until about last year. So, no, I didn't seek it out. Uh, It was more of a, I'm bored, here's Netflix. Oh, John (laughs) Carter. Okay, Uh, Jeff, how about for you? Because I know you're someone who appreciates literature. And terrible movies? Well, (laughs) yes. But, well, it's always the tough thing. And and I would say, as far as John Carter, like, and we'll get into this, obviously, as we as we dive into the movie itself, is that, for me, I love a movie so bad that it's entertaining. That's not this movie. It's not so bad that it's entertaining. <laughs> this falls, for me, with my apologize to our dozens of fans that are only listening to us because we talked about Jupiter Ascending, but this feels very much like Jupiter Ascending, where it's kind of very ambitious and very big and stuff like that. Uh, but for me, you're right, like, it was something that the the reputation, the history, like, all of that, I had definitely heard about it even before it came out, and so I was always very interested in seeing it, not interested enough to actually see it, but just interested to finally get a chance to see it. I only got to watch it uh, about a month ago. Every time it would pop up on Netflix, I'd always put it in my queue and be like, oh yeah, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Yeah. And finally tomorrow. <laughs> came, so. 
Adam, how about you? Yeah, so, okay, well, for me, uh, just fun fact, real quick here, they filmed a great portion of this movie literally just a few miles from my house at Lake Powell. Oh. I live literally right next to Lake now, Powell. Not, so, not then. Not, not at okay. that time, but no, yes, but now I drive by the filming location quite often. But several years before I lived here, I was living in Phoenix, and in 2012, I was engaged to be married, and one month before my wedding, for some reason, I went and saw this in theaters. Oh, this was the beginning of the <laughs> end, wasn't it? My wife may or may not have come along. Oh. She has no recollection of seeing it until we watched it on Netflix again for this show. But I think I was looking back, I was like, what made me go to theaters to see this? And I realized it was this mysterious marketing because it was so terribly promoted I wanted to see what Disney was hiding. I'm like, what are they so ashamed of that they just decided to make it so vague and not really promote it like it's it's this epic, you know, historical film that, you know, like you said, Jeff, a hundred years in the making. They didn't even use the author's name in any of the promotion. And so to me, I just, I was like, okay. And I'll just say, you know, up top, when I found out Taylor Kish was the star, I already hated him for playing Gambit oh, in no. X-Men Origins Wolverine. I he was a decent Gambit, no? Well, the movie was terrible, and he was in the movie, so by oh, extension, you know. And thus, Ryan Reynolds is a terrible Deadpool. Yeah, wait a second. <laughs> and you gotta say, yeah, because then, you, you, well, you never liked Hugh Jackman as Wolverine anyway. So That's that? not this movie. Well, so this is certainly not an original take, but what many people talk about outside of the quality of the film, which we'll get to in a minute, but they do state that it was the, you know, the marketing push that by calling the film John Carter, people didn't know what that meant yeah so there's there's, like it's a a boring guy's yeah there's there's a lot of uh internet chatter we'll put it that there are conspiracies about this movie and a lot of it leads to the exclusion of mars because apparently that turned off female viewers and made them less likely to want to see the movie but just being john carter had them more inclined now i read a different take Because I was told that the director of this film is Andrew Stanton from Pixar. Yeah. He wrote the first three Toy Story films, Monsters, Inc. He directed Finding Nemo and one of Jeff's favorites, WALL-E. So this was his one and likely only foray into live action feature filmmaking. He does TV here and there before he returned to make Finding Dory. And what I heard from him is... Part of his process, because he worked in animation, was he said, look, I'm used to being in a situation where I can change it up to a week before the film is going to theaters. So I want you to plan in the budget for reshoots. And basically, I'm going to probably reshoot the entire movie again, you know, like just because I need to make tweaks. I'm going to figure out what works better. And during the second time around, during that reshoot, he started thinking, John Carter of Mars, he's not John Carter of Mars in the movie. It's about him becoming John Carter of Mars. So really, it should just be John Carter, because this is a story about John Carter. They gave him complete freedom on this film. Disney was like, look, you did an amazing job with WALL-E. Nobody thought that was going to be a hit, and you did it. Just go for it. So even on the marketing, he had influence, and so he cut off of Mars and just left it as John Carter because he thought, oh, this is going to be more mysterious for people. I want it to be like a surprise, like Star Wars. Nobody knows what Star Wars meant before the movie came out, and the trailers were pretty vague, And then people saw it, and the kids, it captured their imagination. That's what our movie's going to do. Our movie is the new Star Wars. (laughs) It's like like Peter Jackson renamed Lord of the Rings, like, just rings. And then let let movie go and discover the world, even though there's all these books. But he didn't let you know it was based on the books. You know, it's just like, hey, good luck. Yeah, I think that was a miscalculation. This debuted the 9th of March, 2012. Disney was in talks with Lucasfilm and bought Lucasfilm October 30th. Okay. The part that I had heard is that, or that I've read, I should say, 
is that there was definitely a blaming the success or failure of this movie on Pixar and that there was a, a division among Disney where the president of Disney Films basically blamed and said, hey, it wasn't just Andrew Stanton, it was all of the Pixar guys. And they were the ones that were always kind of encouraging him, like, go for it, man. Like, no, like, you got this, like, stick with your vision and blah, blah, blah. It even talks about how he would reject, what was it, like all of the studio kept talking about like his advertising because he did a, that big promo with, uh, what song was it? Was it Cashmere? Which he thought, again, was that whole Star Wars vibe of mystery and intrigue and like action and, and whatever, which the studio rejected and or the studio didn't reject. The studio told him not to and he said, too bad, I'm going to do it anyway. And they gave him that green light. I guess, like, the thing is, when you look at all, like, you know, whatever, the studio politics and the fact that they just kind of had that complete control and maybe he was a little full of himself and thought he could accomplish all this. I mean, truth be told, the actors and everybody involved in the production, they loved working with Andrew Stanton. Yeah. Like, they, they were like, we'll come back for a sequel anytime. It's not going to happen because huh. Disney let the rights lapse. They're not interested in it, you know. But, I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is, I mean, the difference between what Stanton did with Wally is that Wally cost 180 million dollars to make and it grossed 533 million off of that. John Carter cost 306 million and then earned 284 million and then you have the marketing budget and everything else. And so Disney claimed a 200 million dollar loss on John Carter. I did see on a list that to date this is the eighth most expensive movie ever made. Like you and, said, and as that's far as including, we just saw Justice League that was at least three hundred million. You've got Infinity War and Endgame that were five hundred and fifty, oh, yeah. six hundred million between the two of them. Right. Well, of, of the top of the top ten, like five of them are Marvel movies. Like they don't mess around, and they can because people, you know, they make a ton of money. So. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, if you look at this also, just think about the movies that came out in 2012 and how old-fashioned and archaic the idea of John Carter is. Because, again, like we're talking about, it was the progenitor of a lot of yeah. big movies like Star Wars and all these other, you know, fantasy epics. But that year, we had the first Avengers film coming out. The, the Amazing Spider-Man reboot came out. We were already in the middle of the comic book boom. So to try to make a movie like this based on, you know, I guess at this point might be able to call it classic literature on some level, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just not going to get butts in seats, you know, whether or not you're putting Led Zeppelin in the trailer. Well, see, and it's that interesting thing, though, is that this is definitely also in the era of, of the world building. And that's where we still are, is that there's only, you know, there's only so many marvels to go around. And it was, what was it? I was just watching something about, uh, what was it called? Was it Mortal Engines? Mortal Oh, Engine? likely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, where there was that one, it was because it's not it's not the success of Marvel that had people interested. It was the success of Hunger Games and Twilight. That was the one they're like, wow, there's really this opportunity for these lesser known. Was it they did Maze Runner and they did uh, Divergent. So, yes, yeah, so they've been trying to find these new worlds to build. And to have one that already has 11 books written and has history on its side. And that's the thing, like, that I have to give them this is that, like, they went for it, you know? It wasn't the, like, well, let's do it, but we're going to give you a real thin budget. Like, oh, no, they swung for the fences and missed, but they swung. Well, in what ways did they miss? Because let's talk about mm -hmm. that. Like, is this a bad movie or is it just jam-packed with so much mythology that as a viewer who has not read the books you feel out of the loop where do you guys fall on the actual casting and the performances like do you feel like taylor kitsch is a good leading man are you on board with him as a grizzled civil war veteran with a tragic past no. <laughs> <laughs> no. well it's the sad thing too that that i it's ironic that i really appreciate with pixar disney doesn't do this i mean pixar has always if they have names in theirs that's not what the movie is about. Like in Wally -E and Finding Nemo and all those sort of stuff, you never heard like, come see Finding Nemo starring Ellen DeGeneres. That was never Pixar's thing. So it sounds like that was the same thing that Andrew Stanton wanted to do here. Like, I want to do Star Wars. I don't want to get a bunch of big names. Although, ironically, Star Wars did have big names. It just was Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing were the two big names, and they are the biggest ones on the marquee, too. But, yeah, the no-name thing, 
I feel like that's a tough sell because now it's not the names that are getting. I mean, even Marvel didn't do that. Marvel used names to get butts in seats. But yeah, even finding a no-namer, Tyler Kish just didn't. He didn't have much charisma, I didn't think. He wasn't very likable. Yeah, well, I, th- I think the difficulty for me is just, yeah, I mean, number one, we're always down on Channing Tatum. We brought up <laughs> Jupiter Ascending, you know, but Taylor Kish has the the pretty boy baby face. Yeah. You just can't hide it. They put facial hair on him. That doesn't help. He just looks <laughs> ridiculous. Like, he just got a big old bushy beard, especially after he wakes up, you know, from being on Barsoom, and he look, just looks like an old prospector, you know, which is essentially what he was, I guess, because he was looking for his cave of gold. Right. But it was just like, it, he just doesn't ever really like you don't connect with him it's like yeah he's this tragic figure but it that is even just touched upon so slightly in these like weird dreamy flashbacks that it's just you never really care about it and again you don't believe that he was like a father that had all this history behind him but at the same time like i remember the only thing i walked out of that movie saying was you know what that lady who played Deja Thoris, she was great, you know, and Lynn huh. Collins. And I'd never seen her before, but I thought she, like, I liked the way the character was written. But I'm in a, a world of, okay, here's more characters, here's more characters, here's another few names you gotta remember, all of that. Like, she was one that stood out. So funny you mentioned that, Adam. She was also in X-Men Origins Wolverine. I knew it. That was her. Kayla Silver Silver Fox. Fox, Yes. Oh, no. That's terrible. Well, I changed my entire rating, man. Right. Did Taylor Kish recommend her? He's like, hey, when I saw that movie, she was pretty good. I'm sure there was some (laughs) sort of connection there. And and it is interesting that you mentioned Adam, and I wonder if it's the same thing can be said for the John Carter character, is she felt very 1930s. Like, I feel like that's how they would write a female character in the 1930s where she has some of that romantic, headstrong, whatever, but still a little bit of the damsel in distress. So the same thing with John Carter. Like, John Carter wasn't supposed to be Flash Gordon because Flash Gordon himself was very one-dimensional, but he was still supposed to be kind of that gruff superhero, the savior from Earth, blah, 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 blah. I, I just feel like that's a tough sell in today's audience. Plus, it's that honoring your source material, which clearly Andrew Stanton wanted to do. And that's the thing for me that I found really fascinating in watching this movie is realizing this was written in 1930 before we knew anything about Mars. Like, or not, it was 1917. I mean, when they wrote this, they literally thought there was possibility of life on Mars. That I was reading something right. they said that. Right before he wrote this, a scientist had discovered what he described as canals from studying Mars through a telescope. And so he had actually put out a scientific theory that these might be dried canals that are evidence of a civilization that may have moved underground. And that's kind of where he started his entire mythology that he was building. But today we know that that's not true. And I mean, Mars doesn't look like they pictured it and this whole jumping around like you're you know superman or something like that probably isn't accurate you know we just saw the martian and that's a pretty accurate (laughs) depiction of what life would be like on mars and hilarious good job matt damon so yeah i think it's a tough sell i don't know how you adapt it while still staying true even Tarzan. Tarzan was big in the 30s and 40s and that was a time where, you know, the Johnny Weissmuller serials and all of that was a big deal. People could get behind that and nowadays that's just not something like they just tried to remake Tarzan again. You know, like just recently and that bombed. Well, Brendan Fraser couldn't fit into the loincloth anymore. That's Georgia the Jungle. (laughs) What are you talking about? What's his name? Skarsgård. Alexander Skarsgård, I think that one was. The cut one. (laughs) Not the freaky one who plays a clown and not the old one who's palling around with Thor. (laughs) But yes, this almost feels like in a way it's if he had done some sort of major transformation i mean it's very close to he-man like i mentioned up at the top i mean he's wearing a he-man costume for what we've come to recognize that as and yet i think the last time this type of movie really could have worked was the 80s like when schwarzenegger was conan that was a huge hit but that was a time when we would idolize people like that with the great physique don't even have to have as much you know charisma
charisma. They just sort of this, you know, ah, you know, it's like it's all about the masculinity and how many people can you kill and how deadly are you, you know? And that's what John Carter was back in the day. I mean, from what I understand in the original source material, he was much more like, yeah, like I get respect through fighting. Like when I defeat somebody, then they respect. And that's what it's all about. And that's not what this movie is about at all. Yeah. And and I don't think we we get very far with having somebody who was a Confederate soldier as our leading man who's supposed to be our white savior in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I thought they really downplayed that. Like, they didn't mention that hardly at all. Which, on the flip side, like, that was a lot of the reviews that I've read say – what a waste of Brian Cranston. Like, Brian Cranston could have done so much more, and instead he has, like, two scenes, steals the show in both of those scenes, and then dies. And But yeah, you're right. I mean, you see it, you're like, oh, and even, like, Mark Strong, who we just saw in Shazam. He's always really a bad great, guy. You know? Yeah. And, and it's always <laughs> a surprise when you go back further and further into movies, and you're like, wait, he was in this? And, and that's a strong performance. Ah, like uh, Willem Dafoe, I thought was great. Like I thought Willem Dafoe as the voice of ours was yeah. You know, was as delightful. long as you have him just the voice, you can rein in I, Willem Dafoe. I don't know. I feel like you could have given him some extra arms and painted him green. <laughs> he's he's alien yeah, enough. He Willem Dafoe could do it. Yeah. <laughs> but do you guys have like a scene like that you feel did work where you say like, you know what, this was at least a cool moment in kind of the jumbled, confusing story we were trying to follow. I was watching a video, which and, and the, as I was watching, it was about what was it like? 12 things that did work in John Carter. And then when he started describing, this is the greatest scene I've ever seen in cinema, I'm like, whoa, whoa, no, no, no. <laughs> so I had yeah. to turn him off at that point. But the one that he did bring up, which I wanted it to be better, but I thought what they did give us was still pretty good, even though the motivation was lacking. But, you know, Marvel has proven we don't need motivation anymore. Was that scene where the three of them are escaping and then the, the, the Therns send all of that horde of, like, barbarians after him. And then he turns around and just butchers them all. And as he's fighting, there's these flashbacks to his family. I thought that was, like... I mean, that was pretty much the only character development that we really got for him, where all of a sudden we're like kind of putting together why he is how he is. And for me, like, if you really slow it down, it doesn't look great. Like, some of the visuals are kind of like, uh, even for 2012, man, like, your, your money should have bought you a little bit more. But it did work, and I, and I felt like watching it visually, it worked for me. I mean, I really enjoyed his relationship with the Tharks, like... I thought that they had a good dynamic where, you know, they're looking to him as a savior. And again, like he's supposed to be thinking, you know, I I look out for myself. I don't really care about them, but he can't help but get involved, especially in the family dynamic and realizing, you know, that Sola is Tars's daughter and all those things. Like he just, he's kind of putting it all together. So I just, I, I really liked that. I almost wished that everything with Zedanga and Helium and all of that wasn't so much involved. I, I wish it was more of a Thark-based story. I think I would have gotten more out of it, and then maybe second film get into all the the bigger dynamics of these warring kingdoms and and things like that. But also like Thomas Hayden Church is that uh, really violent Thark. You know, who's always challenging a Tars Tarkus. You know, like I thought that was an interesting uh, vocal casting choice as well to have. You know, Sandman or Lowell <laughs> from Wings, however you want to look at him these days. <laughs> also in George of the Jungle, he was the villain in that. So he's got a very tangential connection to Edgar Rice Burroughs. Jeremy, did you have a particular scene or moment that you think about as you've gone back and watched it? The arena fight with the giant beast, it was very Star Wars Rancor-esque in a way. It's a mix between the Rancor scene and... Yeah, I don't remember which planet it was, but in one of the prequels, right? Yeah, when they're in the arena, the arena there, yes. Yeah. How many times have we seen these arena fights? And even if you've watched, like, Planet Hulk, the animated film, you know, like, that's what it's all about, you know, these gladiatorial fights and all these things. But technically, John Carter 
that was done first and george lucas was kind of aping that i mean even in the whole thing like they're calling their kings jeddaks you know well jeddak jedi they have these creatures called banths you know george lucas has banthas you know he's like oh just add a few more letters here take a few away it's all original now you know (laughs) so ultimately we didn't get a sequel to this film for all the reasons we've already discussed can it be remade can it be rebooted or if there was a sequel let's just say disney was feeling crazy and they're like well andrew stanton's given us like three more great pixar films and he really wants to do this no, you know? no don't ever so, bring him back uh which i should point out by the way because we haven't actually mentioned it specifically is that post john carter is that yes andrew stanton hasn't been directing any movies but he has directed several episodes of stranger things so that's definitely regained him some cred as far as live action okay we're in charge now what are we gonna do jeff you want to take it away sure okay as listeners of the show know uh, can probably already guess where i'm gonna go because i'm a, a lover of source material So apparently the script that Andrew Stanton already had was based on the second book, which is known as The Gods of Mars. And so I'm going to go for it. John Carter of Mars, The Gods of Mars. I'm going to start off with the opening credits being like a Flash Gordon serial style recap of the last movie. So you see all of those things that took place, like, like Jeremy was talking about getting transported to Mars fighting helium and zodonga and the whole shebang the therns and but this time we're going to redo the end of that movie when he gets transported back to earth so basically we're going to kind of ignore the fact that he was writing that book and all that sort of stuff like that so it's going to end with a comic picture of the mansion that then becomes real and you have a voiceover this is i am captain jonathan carter of mars Ten years ago, I was ripped from my home, my wife, and my people, and for ten years, I've been trying to get home. And then as the camera's kind of zooming in on him, writing over his paper, crumples the paper, throws it away, looks at this board, and he has all of these different pictures, which we kind of saw in this first movie. But John Carter's looking at this board of all of these maps, expeditions, and excavations, and stuff like that. And he's clearly looking for another key or another amulet or whatever it was to get him back to Mars. So as he's kind of panning around, everything ends up pointing towards France. Marnay, France is where he believes that there must be a cave there. So he travels to France, goes to Marnay, but finds out at this time, World War I has actually broken out. So as he's, you know, kind of stuck in the trenches and this whole thing is going on in the Battle of Marnay, figures out through kind of whispers and stuff like that, that there is someone over on the German side that doesn't quite fit there. And he kind of puts the pieces together that figures out that must be a thern, and they're there trying to stop me from getting back to Mars. So they arrange the battle, so he kind of leads this charge across the field so that they can get onto the German side, figures out which one the thern actually is, and they get into hand-to-hand combat, and in the middle of the fight, he notices that the thern is actually wearing the amulet, So in the middle of stabbing and fighting and whatever, he reaches out his hand, grabs the amulet, and shouts the chant, and both of them get teleported to Mars. So they're teleported to Mars, they're in the desert, and then the amulet breaks. So the two of them are stuck together. So of course the first thing they do is they start fighting each other, but they find that with their various talents and skills, they're deadlocked. And then realize, after like some time has passed, they need to work together to be able to survive. So they form an uneasy truce. They start heading off where they believe civilization might be. Then John Carter finds out because the Therns can transform themselves to look like, you know, whatever they want to look like. But this Thern is actually female and her name is Fedor. And Fedor tells John Carter that one of the reasons that the Therns have not wanted him around and have been fighting against him so so much is that their beliefs that their god told them that there's a prophecy that Earth will one day destroy Mars unless the Therns unite the planet. So that's why they've been doing everything that they've been doing, not only to stop John Carter, but also 
to unite the planet. Their first thought was if they could empower the Zeldangas, they could conquer everybody and they would be united that way. So now that's, you know, where they're they're kind of stuck in the middle of all that. So anyway, as they're traveling together, they find an oasis. Hooray, we found water, we're going to survive. But it turns out it's actually a trap by this race of pirates that call themselves the Firstborn. Fidor reveals that the Firstborn are actually the ancient enemies of the Thern. So they capture both of them, they take Fyodor away, and then they take John Carter before their leader, and they find out that their leader, the person that they worship, Isus, has lived for so long that she has actually propagated herself as a god. So she's that god that the Therns actually worship. She's also the one that, that the firstborn worship, uh, as well as both the Zoldanga and the Heliumites, or whatever they're called. They all worship her, even though she's not actually a god, she just lives a really, really long time. And she's been manipulating all of these to her own whims. So then they end up throwing in Carter in jail. And Tars springs Carter. Then he insists that, no, you've got to take Fidor as well. And Tars, of course, doesn't want to because the, uh, you know, she's a, she's a thern and whatever they do anyway. Spring them, take them back to Helium, which is where John Carter was actually reigning as monarch with Deja. But now it's been united united with Zadonga, and Carter tells everybody about the fact that their god is false, is that Isis is not actually a god, so they hate what he has to say, so they put him on trial for heresy. He's found guilty, but then Deja, his wife, frees him. Again, he convinces, no, you have to take Fedor as well. We need to go back to Isis and reveal the truth. So the first thing they do is they go to the Therns, and they say, like, come on, like, your god is fake. Follow us! But they, of course, don't believe him, so they all try and kill him, and as soon as they're all, like, attacking John Carter and he's trying to fight them all off with Deja and Fidor. That's when the firstborn show up. So now all of a sudden not only are they fighting Don, but those two are fighting whatever. And of course, now the Zodongans show up. And so now we've got all three groups. They're all fighting each other, but they're also fighting Carter. And kind of like the battle turns the tide where the Helium soldiers actually mutiny against the Zodongan leaders, even though they're supposed to be on the same team, but they're not. So they rebel in support of Carter. And that's what gives Carter that opening that he can actually get in there with Tars and Fedor and Deja to confront Isis. She refuses a fight break out now it's just the five of them while the battle is raging on in the inside Fidor actually ends up taking i don't know what it would be a sword something like that so she saves carter uh, but is gravely injured and then confesses that she loves john and then that creates awkwardness in front of his wife but then they do finally defeat isis so then tars and carter are bringing isis out to face the armies to show what's really true but then the room all of a sudden that they were previously in starts to seal uh, Isis starts laughing and reveals that when she leaves, that room can then only be opened once a year. So John Carter rushes back trying to save the girls, and Deja's just about to escape, but then Fedor grabs her, pulls her back, and, and is right about to start attacking her or kill her or whatever. As the door closes, the screen goes black, and the credits roll. Wow. Nice, nice. What percentage of that would you say was based on the source material? Like 75%? Well, it's all, well, other than the beginning. The beginning is basically, because that's actually how the book ends. The, the first book ends the way that the movie ended. But I didn't like the way they ended it. So I, I added that first part. And then that whole thing in France, that thing I made up. Because it is a crazy complicated book. All of them are, but this one is so crazy. There's a third person that's also in love with John Carter, and then there's the, the sunroom, that whatever, so we kind of, yeah. Well, thanks for simplifying it that's as my best goal, you yes. could. I decided to take a bit of the source material as well, but adapt it in my own special way. So, for those who don't know and have not read the John Carter novels, by the fourth book... It was now about John Carter and Deja Thoris's son. So he became the hero of that fourth book. His name was Cartoris. Carthoris, I don't know how you want to say it, but it's a combination of their two names. So with that, I give you simply John Carter 2. But if you imagine the title, it would kind of be like a mirror image. There is a symbolism in this being the second film and what takes place here. So I have also fudged a little bit with the timeline. We find John Carter has returned to Mars now 
15 years since his original adventure on Barsoom. In that time, Dejah Thoris has given birth to their son, Carthoris, who is known affectionately as Verge, in honor of his father's former title and nickname that he detests, Virginia. And uh, having grown up without a father, Verge is a bit distant emotionally, but wise beyond his years and assists the head of security, a stoic man named Dijon, who is focused on keeping Pelium strong against invasion by constantly fortifying the borders and walling in the kingdom from outside invasion. So uh, Verge resents having grown up in the shadow of the legendary warrior who abandoned him and always hearing those stories and claims he inherited no special abilities from the quote seed sower as he has chosen to refer to his father instead looking to Dijon as his father figure. Meanwhile we see the body of John Carter awaken in his tomb on earth and he emerges with a devious look in his eyes much to the shock of his nephew Edgar who thought he had just returned to Barsoom. This version of Carter explains that the medallion must have been a fake but he's fine leaving that desolate Martian world behind and that he was foolish to abandon his wealth so quickly. He insists that Edgar refer to him as JC and sets out making plans for a grand party at his estate. This is not the John Carter we know. Back on Barsoom, Carter is awakened now and is told by Dejah that his absence left Helium vulnerable since other factions sought to challenge their champion who was no longer there to face the invaders. As a result, the kingdom and its people have lived an insulated life on the defensive. It is revealed that in the early days they did send out a pair of agents to find Carter on Earth but never heard back and they were written off as lost in space. Word gets out about JC's gala on Earth and it is is a spectacle of opulence with elephants and giraffes roaming the ground, circus performers, liquor flowing freely as JC entertains many beautiful women. He is approached by a mysterious man who informs JC of an expedition that could be funded to uncover a vast treasure in the jungles of the Amazon, but they just need to hire some mercenaries first to wipe out the locals who guard the riches as sacred. JC is very interested and agrees to discuss it further in the morning. Also at the party are Kantos Khan and his assigned partner Moran, who are wearing rags. They are not accustomed to Earth culture, even though they've been looking for John Carter all this time. They were the away team tasked to find him, and they approach Carter as friends for Barsoom, but are instead rebuffed as vagabonds, and JC demands they be thrown out so they do not ruin his night. Edgar meets them outside, having heard the mention of Barsoom, and tells them something is not right. He reveals to them the medallion, wherein they find that it has a fracture, and deduce that it somehow created a mirror image of Carter when his consciousness was attempting to be transferred to Barsoom, and so this version was awakened with the absence of Carter's soul, which was transported with him to Barsoom. So, back in Helium, an attack is underway by a rebellious faction of Tharks, and while Carter offers to go out and try to negotiate with them, Verge instead mercilessly captures them with his perimeter traps and plans to feed them to a pack of Banths for their crime. Carter objects to this, but soon realizes he has no sway with this new generation, and so he takes matters into his own hands, bounding to the scene of the capture and releasing these Tharks, led by a battle-worn Sola, who demands an explanation for why the treaty between Helium and the Tharks was abandoned, as Helium has been secretly stealing treasures from the cave of their goddess. Kantos Khan and Moran return to Barsoom and reveal the situation with the dual John Carters just as Verge figures out that Dijon is the one masterminding this pillaging of the Tharks to gain an ancient power that will make him a god of Mars and is also the mysterious man convincing JC to uncover the earthbound fragments for him that will complete the transfer of Martian energy to Dijon. This helps the father and son patch up their relationship as Verge realizes his other father figure was a traitor. Because Carter can't return to Earth while his double is alive, Verge ends up going to Earth in his place, where, because of his Martian heritage, he has superpowers that help him combat the army of mercenaries that JC has hired and are pillaging the Amazonian artifacts. But he is too late, and Dijon begins absorbing the Martian energy, laying waste to Barsoom to reconstruct it in his desired form. But JC comes upon Dijon's body, and unknowingly 
accordingly begins siphoning the energy through the combination of his medallion and the stolen artifacts. Verge battles a newly empowered JC for the artifacts and the medallion, while on Barsoom, the nearly godlike Dijon is being attacked by the combined forces of Helium and the Tharks, though he is weakening due to the siphoning energy through the medallion to JC. Ultimately, Verge has to let JC kill himself, though it would mean his father would have no earthly body to return to, which the Mad with Power twin does as he tries to crush Verge under John Carter's massive stone mausoleum. But in a battle of will, Dijon saps the final bit of energy from JC and he is crushed under its weight. But so is Verge's transport medallion. In the end, Verge saps all the energy from Dijon himself somehow, and artifacts and power returns to Barsu. There's a lot of stuff going on here, but ultimately Verge ends up returning to Barsoom, uh, attempts to deal a death blow to Dijon himself, but is stopped by Sola of the Tharks, who suggests that the new law of Barsoom should be mercy, peace, and understanding. Verge agrees, and Dijon is imprisoned, as the royal family of Helium is embarking on a mission with Sola to visit all the inhabitants of Barsoom and unite them as a people. And Verge apologizes for allowing Carter's earthly body to die, but Carter says that life on Mars is what he has been seeking. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just as confusing as the first movie. All right, Jeremy, what do you got? All right, this movie would be narrated or told through the eyes of one of John Carter's closest guards, Vordage, on this tale of great battle against a new, synthetically grown, powerful foes, the Hormods. So opening up the amoral yet great Thark scientist slash doctor, because they're the same thing on Mars, mm -hmm. Das Thavis has relocated to a dead city, gone dark with communications, and has been experimenting in growing monstrous synthetic beings called Hormods, humanoids modeled after John Carter. Although he had hoped to build a willful, strong army capable of defeating any other alien armies, he'd only succeeded in creating a handful of them. Their intelligence, though, was unexpected. The smartest amongst the Hormods turned on the Doctor and captured him, forcing him to speed-grow a Hormod army with which they could trample the Tharks. The growing process is much too slow, though, because it would take months, if not longer, so the lead Hormod forces their captive to begin transplanting their brains into the bodies of imprisoned normal Martians. When John Carter and Vordage find the Doctor, they are captured and play weak so as to feel out the scenario. Once they meet up with the Doc in imprisonment, they plot against the monsters and abominations by transplanting Vordage's brain into the body of a Hormod named Tur Dur Bar. <laughs> Having some fun with creating those names. No, you? that's actually from the book. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, no, this guy wow. was really drunk when he made up names. <laughs> uh, in order to spy on their captors, and his adventures form the bulk of this story while they're quote unquote imprisoned. And it's a lot of spy missions trying to figure out what's going on. While in this alien, well, it would be alien to him, it would be a foreign body. This bodyguard, Vordage, falls in love with a fellow captive, the red woman Janae of Amur, but his love seems hopeless while his consciousness resides in the body of a monster, particularly after it seems that his original body has been destroyed. This doesn't last long as he teams up with John Carter of Mars and the Doctor and they foil the evil Hormods, destroying the John Carter-like clones and returning things back to natural order, restoring Vordage back to his rightful body, which had been protected by John Carter and the Doc. So this is based on one of the uh, books? This then? is based on one of the last books, Synthetic Men of Mars. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what it was, all right. That, that sounds exactly like what he was meaning. All right, so let's go to the vote. Adam, where does your vote fall? 
Oh, well, so this is interesting, because I get to basically pick which actual John Carter stories uh, <laughs> sound like something that I would be into. And uh, I thought it was very interesting, you know, the love triangle that's part of Jeff's story at some point and, and all of that. But I mean, I, I don't think I can deny the appeal of synthetic men <laughs> and consciousness transplants and a John Carter clone and all of that. I mean, that that's a lot of craziness to play in, so. So I got to vote for Jeremy on this one. All right. Jeff? Well, see, for me, I'm kind of the other way, where I didn't quite see the whole body transfer thing in the first one. And like you said, Adam, with the whole multi-generational thing, I, I like that. So I'm going to go with Adam. All right. Jeremy? All right. Is this going to be a Mexican standoff here? <laughs> uh, no, we'll go with Adam's here. Oh, been a while, I feel <laughs> like. That's exciting. <laughs> So, what do you guys think? What, what, what were some questions that you had? Because, uh, like I said, I was throwing a lot at you and trying to make up a lot of my own mythology while working with what we so were given. So, is most of the movie on Earth as they're kind of jumping back and forth trying to protect the body, or what? No, I, I would say it really is the stories going on simultaneously. It's a concurrent narrative just to say that you keep jumping back to, you know, JC. I don't want to call him the evil John Carter, but maybe like the amoral John Carter. He's just kind of like, whatever, I just do what's awesome for me. <laughs> you know, and so you're kind of seeing what, what's going on and how he's being manipulated. So there's there's a big part of that. It's supposed to be in some ways like a parallel. I didn't play up so much with Edgar being there, but Edgar would be a character that's with JC who just can't believe all the ridiculous ridiculousness that he's getting himself involved in and, and the way he's spending his money so it's kind of like you know he's disappointed in who he thinks is his uncle and then you got verge on the barsoom side who's you know already had years of resentment toward his father so there's kind of all that going on so are you talking like present day making this or do we need to backtrack five years type thing? I think it would actually benefit. Like, if you've seen pictures of, of Taylor Kish these days, he actually is looking he, his age. He's a lot older than Less I thought baby he was. He was now? like, yeah, hmm. he's like, he was 31 when he made this movie, and it's been seven, eight years by the time it gets made. You know, he'd probably be 10 years. He's in his <laughs> 40s. So to me, like, I feel like him playing a father makes more sense now. Like I say, especially if you fudge the timeline a little bit and say it's, it took a little bit longer for him to get his medallion back and all of that. But what did you guys think in terms of this secret, you know, Jafar-like character uh -huh. behind the scenes in <laughs> Dijon? <laughs> yes, he's named after the mustard. What a <laughs> I mean, it's tough because it's like, I mean, I guess in the first one they did have the distinct villain, and I think that does stand well, who out. Who would you then, consider the villain, Sabfan or the Therns? Well, that's a good point. I mean, I would still say that the because he was the face of it. Sad, sad, sad fan, sad. Uh, yeah, fan. <laughs> sad fan. Sab fan. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. So having a face because yeah, that, that was uh, that was the tough thing about the Therns because he couldn't really fight them or anything like that. And uh, like you said, especially sticking with the concept, you're gonna want a final fight between John Carter and a villain. So. Yeah, and I didn't want to go to the whole, like, him fighting himself, you know, I, I didn't want to make right. John Carter, oh, like, you, mean you know, like his mine? evil twit 100%, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when they were, like, mutated monsters, I was well, assuming, in your pitch. They're they're, they were based off of John Carter, so yeah there would be some differences, enough to get a stunt double in there without any issues. Yeah, well, and I think it's worth bringing up, too, is, you know, the whole concept, because of everything in the film and of the John Carter mythos, the thing that interested me the most is that it wasn't like a Star Trek transporter. That's not what the medallion was, because as we saw in the movie, when he gets transported back, his body has, like, grown a long beard and, you know, how he didn't die, like, you know, like, just sitting there in this, like, state of nothingness in a cave with no food or water or anything. But, you know, like, so it's like your consciousness 
this and then like you said a clone gets created on Barsoom you know it's basically another version of you so that's why I use that as the jumping off point for it all like that I just feel like is the most interesting element of that universe but did that sit okay with you guys that fracture of the medallion causes a double to appear you're all right with that yeah I mean again who knows how anything works and in this day and age people are open to a lot of craziness and as far as any other characters is there a type of character missing or somebody you you feel like you would want to have involved in the story because it it really is like more the story of the reconciliation of a father and a son Mm. so i don't know that like verge needs you know a love interest or anything probably because now did you say it's going to take place as soon as he gets back to mars so he's been gone for 15 years and that's a movie starting Okay, because that's that thing, too, that makes me wonder. I thought with the first movie, is that it kind of, not that it downplayed it, I couldn't even tell that, at least in the book, he was on Barsoom as, like, married to Deja for, like, ten years before that Thern teleported him back. So if you do that, Mm -hmm. then it's like, you've been married to this woman for a long time, and then you disappeared for 15 years. I feel like that reunion, and like, some of the issues are grown apart, or did she remarry, or, or whatever. Yeah, and I definitely considered that with almost making, you know, again, it would be very Jafar, but like Dijon, he's also kind of putting the moves on her, got some type of charisma to him, you know, so she's considered it just for the sake of Verge having a father figure Mm. that's official. Because that that would be an interesting dynamic. It adds a little bit more for John Carter to deal with, because otherwise he's just there trying to make up with his son. But if you add that wrinkle, that at least a source of comedy, it could be. You could have a little bit of fun yeah. with that. What if, uh, instead of the broken medallion angle, what if we did something so that Deja, for 15 years, was trying to figure out how to get to him? And that somehow the combination of those two, that's what causes the schism. Well, that, yeah, that could work. Cause that was the other thing I was considering. Because, again, he has his body on Earth. So when he transports back, what happens to the body that was created on Barsoom? Mm-hmm. Is that just there in a stasis? Right. Does it just evaporate? Yeah. And so it, it would seem to me that, like, maybe you know, that is something where they kept his body preserved. And then in that process, like you're saying, like trying to make some sort of connection. That could even play into Jeremy's pitch a little bit, you know, just like... <laughs> Like the idea of that somebody's like, well, you know, we're going to try to awaken him. And then they're getting the idea of cloning a John Carter, you know, that that, that changes the story quite a bit. But because that's the other thing, like the, the, the only reason with the medallion fracture being a part of it is that it places that as a central mechanism throughout the film. Like we said, with all the back and forth that's going on. Right. So it kind of makes that a focus. So if you take that away, it creates a a much different focal point for the narrative, I feel like. But like you say, if she's trying to contact him, she's sending telegraph messages like he did in the beginning. (laughs) He doesn't understand them because she doesn't speak English. And they're like, ah, it's just a bunch of symbols. I don't know. So I had the Tharks, but I only had Sola in this. So I didn't know if you guys felt like does Tars Tarkas need to have a, a role to play in all this? Does he go to Earth? <laughs> it's like, uh-oh. Because I also said I didn't have Therns. Like, there were a lot of characters I kind of didn't involve, or the Zedangans or anybody. I kind of wanted to pare it down and simplify right, it somewhat, right. make it a more personal story. That's the challenge, and that's what I think was one of the things that was so difficult for this first movie, is that same thing with Dune, same thing with Jupiter Ascending, is that how do we cram all of this into two, two and a half, three hours? Yeah, I think simplifying it gives stronger what you already have. Uh, I feel like at least some lip service to, to TARS, I don't know that he needs to be a significant part. And that's that challenge, too, that I wondered. Like you mentioned, is that the problem that this first one had was that it didn't, not that it didn't honor the source material, but people didn't know that. The people that were big fans yeah. of the, the the thing. So I do kind of wonder to honor those big fans, assuming they're out there somewhere, is that Tars is a pretty big thing of the books, it seems. Or maybe he's the one that teaches Verge how to fight or something like that. 
maybe that's why Verge would be upset about it. Like when he learns Dijon has been attacking them and stealing their artifacts and all of that, because he did have a relationship when he was younger with Tars and they were on good terms with the Tharks and he was unaware because they've been walling themselves off, which again, in case anybody didn't get it, that was supposed to be like a metaphor for him walling himself off from his emotions and everything about losing his father. It's deep, man. It's deep. deep. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I think that could be good actually, because then at least, there's there's a mention of him and and there's a you know a conversation to be had there and and maybe it's just a little cameo where they reunite and and all those things that'd be great but yeah i mean if you guys don't have any other major quibbles with it i guess you guys have a an idea for a good character actor you'd like to play the villain you want to get brian cranston in there as dijon mm, <laughs> give him his chance christoph waltz is always he'll steal the show though Especially if you're going to hit up him up against Kitsch. Yeah, Taylor Kish wouldn't stand a chance, would he? (laughs) But then again, it's not like his role in this, it's somewhat minimal. I feel like he's there. But because it, it, it is more of a, I, I, I don't know if you'd really call it an ensemble piece, but I feel like he is sharing it with whoever the actor is that's going to play the son. I, you know, I wouldn't feel too bad if you have somebody like a Christoph Waltz, or if you look at the people of Helium, a lot of them were actors from New Zealand, you know, like they were Kiwi actors. Mm. So I wonder if there's somebody that we should include that maybe, you know, has not been utilized but might have that like for example we just reviewed Hobbs and Shaw for our last sequel chat you got that Cliff guy who was in there he might you know be able to play that role he, he's got kind of an intense look to him I mean in that movie he had like braids he had a whole different look with Curtis what do you think he looked like he could play a bad guy sure yeah, yeah maybe yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not he's sold on him, Adam. The Walking Dead, he was. Okay. He's in The Meg, so you can't go wrong, you know? Uh, well, Jason Statham was in that, too, so... <laughs> oh, Lord. Or the guy who's uh, Boba Fett's dad, who the clothes were based off of, whatever his name is. All the Star Wars fans are like, come on! <laughs> Sorry, Pax. He knows all those names. What about this? You know, we're talking about Tars Tarkas... What if Willem Dafoe, I mean, he sort of played an advisor role in Aquaman, but he was a good guy, so maybe he could be the advisor type, but he's just got the sinister look. I mean, you're going to know he's a bad guy, and everyone else around him doesn't see it for some reason, but, we, you know, the audience does, of course. Because <laughs> you, you got to love Willem Dafoe. He'll always bring it. Keep it in the family. What do you say? Yeah, because, again, you want, I think you want Tars around there and to have Liam Schreiber. Now, now we got to reunite more cast members from exactly. X-Men Origins that's, Wolverine. That's, 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 what, that's what we make these movies for. Or a Skarsgård. See, we're just, it's all a circle, you know? Jeremy, you're, you're, you're not throwing out any ideas. You're, you're telling us you're not a fan, but who's impressed you lately that you want to see take out a heavy role? I, I'm still kind of blown because we could definitely transition into a third movie with my pitch. <laughs> off of off of what you brought up there we're on to casting know, we're on to casting let Ooh. it go what about when i go in kiwi though what about what's his name that was in uh, harry potter uh and then wonder woman david thulis thulis yeah who played the bad guy in wonder woman because he's generally likable i don't know man because he was the wolf teacher in harry potter yeah, right yeah yeah he was like it. No, he's too goofy looking. He was the worst. But he was the bad guy in, in Wonder Woman. I know, and that was terrible. Remember when he got his his stupid head on a giant muscular body? That. Yeah, yeah. That's not what he's gonna. <laughs> now, because the other option that you could do is, I mean, you don't want to go full on uh, Fantastic Beasts or anything like that. But you could make the subplot leading into a further sequel trilogy, whatever is that this person is actually a Thern, so that he can shapeshift. He's kept kept this one thing. So you could actually cast multiple actors, you know, actress. 
Who knows? Well, that's true, but that's I, I didn't like that about the Therns. Oh, I didn't okay. like all this. Uh, they, like they're the secret bad guys hiding behind the scenes, keeping everything moving. Like I enjoyed your explanation and your pitch made me understand what they were about more. But I just like I, I don't know. That's why I didn't include any Therns because they were like my least favorite characters <laughs> in the film. Okay. <laughs> I was just like ah, so. This David Thewlis, maybe I'll let him take another swing at it. Maybe he can impress me. Because like you say, if he can flip on us and we sort of like him and then we realize how evil he really is, then I think that's an easy way to go. I just, my concern, like I said again, is at the end, it's just like when he reveals himself to be Ares in Wonder Woman. Maybe you just don't put his face in there now. You, you, you totally transform. Kind of sticking with that same Harry Potter feel there the guy who played lucius malfoy jason isaacs oh well no one's gonna believe he's a good guy come <laughs> on well he's not blonde Isaac, he's so horrible i love him but he is always a bad guy taika yeah. waititi let's just throw him <laughs> in there you never let know him, what let you're him be a say. villain <laughs> so he's kind of a, an eccentric goofy bad guy yeah well if we're sticking marvel i mean paul bettany that's always would be a fun one. He was pretty good at solo, right? No, was, no one was good at solo. <laughs> well, if I'm if I'm making the executive decision, I'm gonna have to go with Paul Bettany on this one as Dijon. But then the next question becomes who is going to play Verge, right? Who's gonna play the son of John Carter? Uh Dylan O'Brien. Okay, what's he from? Teen Wolf. Maze Runner. He's the oh, main he guy in Maze Runner. Runner. Okay. Oh, Maze Runner is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thomas. I like that because I was going to suggest you know, the kid who played Billy Batson in Shazam, Asher Angel, right? Yeah. Is that his name? Yeah. He, he played that role of that kid, with, again, without parents who didn't really feel like he connected, but he kind of, you could still like him because that's the thing. Oh, like, no. You yeah, don't want to hate have to Verge. Go your route you know? there, Adam, because okay. Dylan O'Brien's almost 30. Oh. But he doesn't look it, though. <laughs> right, but neither does Taylor Kitsch. Well, he does now, apparently. Like an old man. Yeah, well, he's, he's shown a little Letting age. the gray come in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think Asher Angel, that would actually be pretty interesting to see him take on that, that kind of role. Be a little bit more, not that he wasn't dramatic in Shazam, but I think there was a lot more comedy that he was playing the straight man in. So in this case, we could do a little bit more dark and brooding for a while. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that's ultimately it. Now, so the question that becomes that, as you said, you know, we don't want Andrew Stanton back. <laughs> we well, you're not getting have a director who's helping man. this. I know, he claimed that was is, the I only mean, way, right? And, I mean, I guess we're not, you know, that grounded in reality, that we need to appease our, our performers. So, I mean, maybe if he likes the script, oh, he loves it. Plus, he gets to play two roles every actor loves to play. <laughs> right. You know, Michael Keaton did it in Multiplicity. Doesn't, doesn't he get double scale for that as an actor? Like, <laughs> I'm sure. Like, playing two different characters? <laughs> I mean, you can definitely entice him, and it can be just that, you know, I didn't want to do it unless the director came back, but the script won me over. They have somebody exactly. overlooking it now. Yeah, there's ways to get around that. We got it. For some reason, I don't I don't know if he's 100% right, but the person that I was thinking would maybe let him work in a realm where there's not so much expectation, but Ryan Johnson... Because you know he got so much blowback from the Last Jedi, it was such a split opinion on that film that I was like, "What if he came in and took this one on <laughs> and gave it something?" You know? Yes, it didn't go well for you last time. Here, let's let's have you remake a remake a flop. Uh, well, that's the point, right? You know, it can only go thought, up from here. Josh Trank, my friend, exactly. Just give it to Josh Trank. You know, can't sink any lower. <laughs> they should collaborate. They should co-direct. Oh. <laughs> These promising young directors promising. who had their careers destroyed. Oh, no. I don't know. They were like they were like being touted oh, as these wonderkins, you know. Uh, apparently, he's directing a movie that's in post production now. Or that other guy, the Jurassic World guy. Okay, he's played with big money before, and succeeded. Trevorrow. He's he's in that Disney pocketbook. I don't know. He might be a little miffed because he was supposed to be doing. Episode 9, and yeah. J.J. had to come back in. Yeah. 
Well, this is his movie where he sticks it to JJ and he makes John Carter too amazing. <laughs> makes you know, his like, own Star Wars. He did still, yeah, he wrote, yeah. He wrote Jurassic World three. John Carter two, a Colin Trevorrow picture, <laughs> based on characters created by Edgar Rice Burroughs, <laughs> but definitely not an Edgar Rice Burroughs story. <laughs> I will happily take the screenwriting credit for that. People will be like, "You're ruining John Carter." I'm like, "You never cared about John <laughs> Carter. Don't give me that." <laughs> all right well there you have it folks thanks for giving us a listen and hope you uh like this discussion i mean john carter is uh, is a fascinating tale of hubris and bad timing i guess you would say but now maybe there's another chance for it in the future maybe john carter 2 is gonna bring him to the forefront at least people will be down with verge you know be the verge chronicles so our uh, sequel chat coming up we're going to be discussing the newest rambo film yes stallone is back rambo last blood what may very well be the final sequel although maybe he'll just reboot it a different way like he did with uh, the creed films but we'll see we'll see yeah but just uh, stay connected to the retro network there's a lot of fun stuff that's going up there on a regular basis if you can't get enough of my voice i show up on quite a few podcasts that i get invited to participate in over there next time around we will be coming back with our halloween episode so we uh, we hope you get excited for that and uh, that you will look forward to what spooky stories we might bring your way so until next time i thought you didn't care i don't we thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com or SQPod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.